for the kindness and severity of God, and we thank you for your kindness towards us. We thank you for your mercy towards us. Lord, we thank you for your word. We recognize that all flesh is like grass, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Lord, I pray now as we look into your word that you would open up our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. Please guide us now by your Holy Spirit in your word, and we pray this together in Jesus' name. Well, this morning I'd like to begin our time in God's Word in Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. So if you have a Bible, I'd love to just invite you to open up your Bible to Matthew chapter 21. This morning it's ultimately more important that you read with your own eyes what God has said in His Word rather than simply hearing my words. His words are ultimately so much more valuable than mine, infinitely more. But let's look at Matthew chapter 21 beginning in verse 33 a parable of our Lord Jesus Christ. Please follow along with me in verse 33. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and he built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. And when harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive produce. The vine growers took the slaves and beat one killed another, and stoned a third. Again, he sent another group of slaves, larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. But afterward, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes... What will he do to those vine growers? And they said to him, He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, and he will rent out the vineyard vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper season. Well, like many of Jesus' parables, we don't find an exact explanation of this parable in the text, but nonetheless, what Jesus is communicating here is very clear. In Matthew 21, the conflict between the religious elites and Jesus is really coming to a head in Matthew's gospel. This is the final week of Jesus' life. Palm Sunday had just occurred earlier in chapter 21. The masses of those who were in Jerusalem were excited about who this Jesus might be and, and what he might do for them, particularly in terms of political strength or military strength. They were wondering just who this Jesus was. And then earlier in this very chapter, Jesus cleansed the temple for a second time, infuriating the Jews and the Jewish leaders. Then the following day, the chief priests and the elders of the people questioned Jesus about his authority to do these things, particularly like turning over the money tables in the temple. In the parable that we just read, is part of Jesus' response in questioning him about his authority. And this parable is really a summary of the history of the Jews, what we might call God's chosen vineyard. It's a summary of a stiff-necked people with stiff-necked leaders. And when God should have been expecting fruit from this people, all he found was thorns. He sent his messengers over and over again to the nation of Israel, correcting them, And many of them they killed, rejected, and then finally God sent his son. 
And sadly, what did they do with his son? They threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. And so here in sort of cloaked terms, Jesus is prophesying his own death at the hands of the Jews. And then ironically, in verse 40, Jesus asked these Jewish leaders what God should do with those vine growers. In other words, what will God do with you for your constant rejection of me? And their answer is correct. Look again at verse 41. They said to him, He will bring those wretches to a wretched end and rent out the vineyard, the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper season. So these Jewish leaders didn't realize that they were ultimately speaking about themselves. And this is exactly what God did. God brought wave of judgment after wave of judgment upon Israel. And the Jews' rejection of the Messiah was really the culmination of their rebellion against God. And God, God in his grace originally chose them and in his mercy he covenanted with them, but they refused to follow him. They refused to obey the terms of the covenant. And in Luke's account of of Jesus' triumphal entry, we catch some of Jesus' emotions about this. If you would, I'd invite you to just keep your hand in Matthew 21 and turn to the right to Luke 19, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19. It's the same exact time uh, as Matthew 21, but here Luke captures some of the emotions of Jesus that I want us to see. Luke chapter 19, and look with me at verse 41. This is right after Jesus enters the city, Palm Sunday, verse 41. And when he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it. He wept over the city of Jerusalem, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side, And they will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. This is precisely what occurred when the Roman Emperor Titus laid siege to Jerusalem in AD 70. That's exactly what Jesus is talking about. Titus' forces surrounded the city, choking off all supplies coming in, starving thousands of trapped Jews in the city. The Romans slowly conquered various sections of the city, and then ultimately in about six six months' time frame, Jerusalem was entirely sacked. And the Romans ruthlessly slaughtered men, women, and children by the thousands. The the city was destroyed, including the temple complex was completely destroyed. And in Luke 19, Jesus was prophesying of that judgment against Israel. This destruction would come because, verse 44 tells us, they did not recognize the time of their visitation. At the very time when they should have embraced the Messiah, they rejected him. And as a result, they suffered the wrath of God. And if you have your hand there in Matthew 21, turn back there. So the Jewish leaders are here forecasting their own destruction in verse 41. 41, they say there that he will turn those wretches over to a wretched end and then rent out the vineyard to other vine growers. And note how Jesus continues in verse 42. Jesus said to them, did you never read the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected, this 
became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but, whomever it, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. When they sought to seize him, they feared the people because they considered him to be a prophet. So now the Jews understood that the parable of the vineyard was about them. They got the message here. And instead of repenting, they hated Jesus all the more and sought to kill him. And while the Jews continued in their blind rage, bent on killing Jesus, God was moving on from them. He was moving on. In terms of the parable, God was renting out the vineyard to other vine growers. Look again at verse 43. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing fruit of it. This is the kingdom that was promised to the sons of Israel, the sons of Abraham, but they rejected it here. So the kingdom would be given to another people, a Gentile people, Gentile Christians, to use the words that we read earlier from Romans 11, by Israel's transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles. The natural branches were broken off because of their unbelief so that wild olive branches could be grafted in, receiving the promised Abrahamic blessings. And with the death of Christ sort of came in a new era of human history, of God's plan of redemption. God left behind Israel, set them aside, and he went out to the Gentiles, the Gentile Christian church. So God has hardened the Jews, but he's poured out his grace upon Gentiles like us. And this is, what we, this is the current time that we are in, the time of the Gentiles, the Gentile church. This is where we've been for the past 2,000 years since Christ's death. There has been a partial, a partial hardening of Israel so that, most, so that most of the Israelites are in a state of rebellion today. And this is all relevant because of the passage that we come to today in 1 Thessalonians Paul focuses in on Jewish opposition to the gospel. So if you would, I'd invite you to turn over there with me. As you know, we've been making our way through this inspired letter, 1 Thessalonians. Paul wrote this letter sometime around AD 50 or AD 51. And we know from Acts 17 that Paul and Silas had came into this city preaching the gospel and had won many converts and made many disciples. We know that they were only there for a few months' time and they sort of planted this young church. And the Jews of the city sort of instigated a protest against Paul and Silas and they were kicked out of the city, out of the city as a result. They were sort of expelled from the city. And then being unable to return... Paul is now writing a letter to affirm his love for this church and instruct them about, it, about some various topics. And, and in our Bibles, 1 Thessalonians is, is five chapters. And we've made our way through that opening chapter, which centers around Paul's thankfulness for this city or this church in the city of Thessalonica. And then in chapter 2, Paul found it necessary to give a defense of his ministry. 
You see, there was unbelievers in Thessalonica who were critical of Paul and the way he did his ministry. And so Paul responds in the first 12 verses of chapter 2 by sort of defending his own conduct. He, he reminds them of how devout and upright and blameless they were when they were with them. But as we come to verse 13, which we looked at last week, Paul begins to, the point, Paul begins to point to the church's own response to the gospel. He's highlighting how they responded to the preaching of the gospel as a means of testifying his own legitimacy and the legitimacy of his ministry. He's saying, look how you responded to our preaching. In verse 13, he said, you receive the word from us as being the very words of God, which it is. And so they embraced Paul's teaching as being the very words of God. Paul was preaching the God-given message that he had. And then in verse 14, Paul points to a second aspect of their response to his ministry. It was the fact that they suffered for the sake of the gospel. Paul knew that God had done a great work there in that city because they were willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel. So let's read this passage together. 1 Thessalonians, look at beginning in verse 13, and we'll read through verse 16. 1 Thessalonians. Paul writes, For this reason we constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but what, for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also suffered the same suffering at the hands of your own, your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but are hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved, with the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them to the utmost." So focusing in on verse 14, we find here a second way that the Thessalonians responded to Paul's initial sort of church planning visit. Not only did they welcome the word of God into their lives, they were also willing to suffer for it. And he also explains how the word of God was working within them. He mentions that at the end of verse 13, that the word of God was working within them. And verse 14 begins with this conjunction for. It's explaining how. Paul could identify that the Word of God was distinctly operative among this church because of what he shares in verse 14. He says, For you became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same suffering at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews. So like he did back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6, Paul praises this young church for their imitation. Back in chapter 1, the Thessalonian Christians had become imitators of the Lord and of, of the missionaries. But now Paul says that they were also imitators, a very good thing in this context, of the churches of God in Christ Jesus there in Judea, particularly in the way that they suffered. Judea here likely refers to what we commonly refer to as Palestine. So Paul admired the way the churches in the region of Judea had suffered for the sake of the gospel. And now this young church in Thessalonica, aware of the suffering of those churches, 
was now following in their footsteps, suffering for the sake of the gospel. And this was all striking proof that the word of God was mightily working within them. They were a bona fide church of God in Jesus Christ there in Thessalonica. A church of God. I think this refers to a church that belongs to God. And they were a church in Jesus Christ. That is, an assembly of Christians who were in union with Jesus Christ. And this is in contrast to a Jewish assembly. Really the similar words, church and assembly. There were Jewish assemblies, synagogues, who were not in Jesus Christ, but this was a church of God in Jesus Christ. A true church. And considering the persecution of the Judean churches, it's really difficult to identify what specific persecution Paul has in mind. There's really sort of three waves of persecution that came against those Judean churches since the time of Christ's death. There was the initial one in AD 30 that if you recall, Paul had a hand in. Paul, or we might call him then Saul, was heavily persecuting the churches of Christ in Judea. You you might recall the stoning of Stephen, how they laid their garments at the feet of Saul. There was another Well, one thing about that early persecution, that if Paul has that in mind, it's a little bit interesting that Paul didn't reference himself. I mean, Paul was active in that persecution and in persecuting the churches. So I don't think that's quite what Paul has in mind. There was a second wave of persecution against the church in the early 40s. In this period, this is when James, the brother of John, was murdered, and they tried to murder Peter as well. This was an attack specifically against the leaders of the, of the church. But there was even a more recent period of persecution against the Judean churches. This would have, one, would have occurred late in the 40s, perhaps even early 50, 50s, and would have been very fresh in Paul's mind. This persecution arose because of some sort of what we might call Jewish zealots in Israel who are seeking to rid the country and rid the region of any foreign influence. And they considered the Christians as part of that and began persecuting them. So these are likely what Paul might have in mind. These waves of persecution are perhaps that last wave of persecution that came against the Judean churches. The church of Thessalonica imitated that example the suffering that they endured, and they too had suffered at the hands of their own countrymen. That's what the text says. Their own countrymen, meaning citizens there of Thessalonica were persecuting the church. And we know based upon Acts 17 that the Jews were really the ones in Thessalonica that were under all the persecution. They're the ones who instigated it. And so there in verse 14, with just that mention of the word Jews, Paul goes on sort of a tangent A tangent, that is, verses 15 and 16. And in those verses, in some of the strongest terms that we find in the New Testament, Paul condemns a long line of Jewish opposition to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And maybe more broadly speaking, just opposition from the Jews to the will of God. Paul here provides a really sharp critique, a denunciation of the vicious activities of the Jewish, the Jewish persecutors. You see, the Jews had an incredible track record of rebelling against God's will and really unrelenting hostility against the church. And part of the difficulty in this passage is understanding 
Why did Paul feel it was necessary to add these no- this note here, these two verses, explaining this Jewish opposition? Why, why did he do that? Why these? It's kind of a tangent. Why, why include these? And I think there's a couple reasons. For one, the Jews there in Thessalonica were a major reason why Paul couldn't come back to Thessalonica. And as we see later in the, in the letter, he wanted to come back but could not. The church wanted him to come, but he could not come. So I think that helps us to understand why he could not come. He's focusing in on that, on the Jews. And he'll focus later in on this, more about this later in the book. Another reason that Paul likely added these two verses about Jewish opposition to the gospel was sort of to strengthen that young church's faith, strengthen their faith by knowing that they were suffering in a very normative way, a very normal way for the churches. The the Thessalonian Christians were suffering at the hand of the Jews and in doing so were taking part in sort of a habitual historic practice or pattern. There were always Jews who resisted the gospel. So by expounding upon these Jewish persecutors, Paul was strengthening this church's faith and then comforting them in their affliction. And he was affirming to them that their situation and the persecution that they were undergoing was not unique in any way. And so along with strengthening their faith and then providing an explanation of why he could not come, I think there's a final reason that Paul provides these sort of excursus on Jewish opposition. I think that is he wants to explain to the Thessalonians and ultimately to us today a sort of a picture into God's heart as to how God thinks about Jewish opposition to the gospel or how God thinks about Jewish resistors to the gospel. Under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, we can be sure that what Paul wrote here in verses 15 and 16 is an accurate representation of God's own heart to his own chosen people who resist the gospel. You see, God desires that we think rightly about the nation of Israel, and particularly here, the Jews who persecuted the people of God. And if you notice here, I'm trying to be careful not to lump all Jews in, in here as the sort of the target of Paul's indicting words. Not all Jews resisted the gospel. And not all Jews persecuted the church. I mean, after all, Paul himself was a Jew who was now within the church. He had believed the message. All of the 12 apostles were Jewish. So not all Jews rebelled against the gospel. Some embraced it. There's always been a believing remnant, what we might say, down throughout the the history of the church and the history of Israel. Yet sadly, the majority of Israelites have always rebelled against God and rebelled against God's gospel. So I'd like us to follow Paul down this sort of inspired rabbit trail, which is verses 15 and 16, and focus this morning on that Jewish opposition. I think Paul would have us know something here. And if we do, I I think we're going to break these verses into sort of three parts. First would be the past manifestations of opposition, Then we'll see present, ongoing manifestations of opposition. And then finally, we'll see the results of that Jewish opposition to the gospel. In the original language, this passage has a very clear structure to it. It revolves around four participles. Paul gives four descriptions of the Jewish opposition. In the first two of these particles, he cites historic examples. That's the past tense followed by two present tense ones describing how the Jews are acting now or what God thinks about them here and now. 
And then finally, Paul sort of has these purpose statements, concluding what are the results of, of this Jewish opposition. So, so with that sort of outline in mind, let's consider those past manifestations of Jewish opposition, beginning in verse 15. And again, with just the mention of the word Jews, Paul begins to just sort of begins this indictment against them. And he cites here two great past offenses. He says, the Jews who both killed the Lord Jesus Christ and the prophets and drove us out. So Paul here first starts with really the ultimate culmination of Jewish resistance to the will of God. They killed the Lord Jesus. And the emphasis is on the word Lord. It stresses the enormity of this heinous act. The Jews who those Judean Jews killed was no mere mere human. He was the Lord. This was the God-man who had come to save Israel and they resisted him and turned and handed him over to the Romans to be murdered. And here Paul is placing all the responsibility of Christ's death squarely upon the Jews. He's well aware that the execution of Jesus was carried out by the Romans, including Pontius Pilate and Herod Antipas, but without question, without question, they shared in the responsibility of Jesus' death. But here in this passage, in Paul's mind, the Jews were chiefly responsible. In the New Testament in general, it's more common for Paul to refer to Christ as being crucified rather than being killed. And it appears that that word Paul uses the word killed here rather than crucified for two reasons. The first is that the act of crucifixion suggests the Romans. It suggests that they were the one to do it. So it seems that Paul might have not used that word to keep the emphasis upon the Jews. And also, by saying the word killed, he's also able to lump in the killing of the prophets. You see, throughout the Old Testament, there were many prophets of God who went to Israel by God's instruction who were then killed by God's people. For example, in 1 Kings 18.4, you'll recall the evil queen Jezebel, that she there, she literally cut off many prophets of God from Israel. She, as the queen of Israel, killed many prophets of God. It's for this reason that, Israel, that Elijah was on the run. You'll recall he hid in a cave. And in 1 Kings 19, it says, that Elijah said, The sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, O Yahweh. They've torn down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. As another example of killing prophets in 2 Chronicles 24.20, there it records the brutal stoning of a prophet named Zechariah at the will of Joash, who was the king of Judah. The king of Judah putting to death a prophet of God. And without mentioning the killing of the prophets, Nehemiah 9 captures sort of the abiding spirit of Israel. This is how he describes them. He says, But as as soon as Israel had rest, they did evil again before you. Therefore you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies, so that they would be ruled over. And when the Israelites cried out to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you rescued them according to your compassion." and admonish them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted arrogantly and did not listen to your commandments, but sinned against your ordinances, by which if a a man observes them, he shall live. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not listen. However, you bore with them for many years 
and admonish them by your Spirit through your prophets. And yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the land. That is just the pattern of Israel right there. In the book of Jeremiah chapter 26, there's a prophet named Uriah, a little-known prophet who was slain by a sword none other, none, then by none other than the king of Judah himself, Jehoiakim. The king of Judah slaying one of the prophets of God. He would not tolerate, tolerate the prophesied word of the Lord there in Israel. And it was because of examples like this that Jeremiah said in two, chapter 2, verse 30, that the sword has devoured your prophets like a destroying lion. And this is not only in the Old Testament that we see evidence of the prophets being killed. If you would, I invite you to turn back to Matthew 23. We'll see Jesus' own words about how Israel or how the Jews responded to the prophets. And some of Jesus' Jesus's sharpest words. I'd love for you to see this with your own eyes. Matthew 23. Look at verse 29. See Jesus' own words. Look at Matthew 23, verse 29. Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, If we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. And Jesus says, So you testify against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How will you escape the sentence of hell? Therefore, behold, I'm sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city so that upon you may fall the guilt of all of the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Verse 37, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your, gather your children together, the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Notice that Jesus' words here are spoken specifically against the Jews in Jerusalem, those Judean Jews. And this is just the habitual pattern of Jerusalem. The killing of the prophets and ultimately the killing of the greatest prophet, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this is what Paul is highlighting. You killed the Lord Jesus Christ and you've killed the prophets over and over again. And back in 1 Thessalonians, in the rest of verse 15, we see another sort of past occurrence of this opposition from the Jews to the gospel. It says there in verse 15, and you also drove us out. Drove us out. What is that referring to? I think it's referring to none other than the Jews who drove Paul out of Thessalonica, resulting in those city magistrates then forcing Paul and Silas to leave leaving behind this very young church. I mean, just three months. 
These were people who came out of paganism, turned from idols to the living God. They were new in the faith, and then their pastor missionaries were ripped away from them. So this was a very personal example for both Paul and the Thessalonians of Jewish opposition. The Jewish opposition there in Thessalonica is what caused these two leaders of the church to leave behind these recent converts. And from the rest of the letter of 1 Thessalonians, we know that those, that church, the Thessalonian church, sorely missed Paul and those other missionaries. We missed their presence there among them. But continuing on in verse 14, now Paul changes to the present tense. And he's now describing the ongoing action of the Jews who were bent on destroying Christianity. This is what I refer to as the present manifestations of opposition. Paul wrote, They are not pleasing to God, but are hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. So the Jews themselves were convinced that they were actually pleasing God by persecuting the Christians, but the sad reality was is that they were actually doing the exact opposite. They were displeasing to God, and they were storing up wrath for themselves. I mean, consider the Apostle Paul himself. There was a time when he, as a Jew, was persecuting the church, zealously persecuting the church, thinking that he was doing so in a way that would please God. But the Lord Jesus, as you recall, in Acts chapter 9, had to correct him from heaven and turn him around. In that passage, it says, Now Saul, or Paul, he was still breathing threats and murderous threats against the disciples of the Lord. And it says, as he was traveling, it happened that he was, as he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then Paul said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus who you are persecuting. You see, Paul was actively hunting down Christians, hunting down disciples of the Lord, but persecution against the church The people of God is ultimately persecution against Jesus himself, which is why Jesus said, why are you persecuting me? And by God's grace, Paul came to this realization and it totally reoriented his life. But many of Paul's fellow countrymen still believed they were pleasing God by persecuting the church. They were trapped in that pattern. And we really might not sense sort of the depth of this charge that Paul's leveling against them when he says that they were displeasing to the Lord. But you have to understand that being pleasing to the Lord was everything to Paul. It was one of his favorite expressions in the New Testament. It was a way of describing righteous and godly behavior. In chapter 4, verse 1 of this letter, Paul reminded the Thessalonians of the necessity of living in a way that pleases God. According to 2 Corinthians 5.9, it was the Apostle Paul's goal to live his entire life as being pleasing to God. He says, I make it my ambition to be pleasing to him. It's really the goal that we should all have, to be pleasing to God. Every area of our life, pleasing to God. But the Jews who were hindering the work of the gospel here were completely ignorant to that life. Their life was completely displeasing to God. And it also says they were hostile to all men. And we ask, well, how, how are they hostile to all men? Well, it's explained in the next verse there. They were hostile to all men because they hindered us from speaking to the Gentiles so that we may be saved, so that they may be saved. So like 
the Jews did in Thessalonica by actively working to prevent the spread of the gospel, they were working against the eternal good, the salvation of the Gentile people. They were working against the eternal good of all mankind. And again, this was just the repeated, persistent pattern of the Jews, and particularly against the ministry of the Apostle Paul. He was all too familiar with this. I mean, the, the book of Acts just records incident after incident of Jewish opposition to the gospel. Consider this, in Acts 13, in the city of Poseidon, Antioch, out of Jews, the the Jews, sort of in a jealous rage, instigated a, a persecution against Paul and Barnabas so that they were drove out of the entire region. And then in Acts 14, the next chapter, the cities, the, those missionaries, same missionaries, enter the next city, Iconium, and the same thing occurs there. They're, the Jews embitter the Gentiles against them. And then later in that same chapter, Acts 14, Jews from Antioch and now Jews from Iconium follow Paul to another city called Lystra, disrupting, disrupting the preaching of the gospel there. And that resulted in the stoning of Paul. And we also know about the situation that occurred with the Jews in Thessalonica. Again, it was the Jews who instigated the Gentiles to have Paul kicked out of the city. Then Jews from Thessalonica followed Paul to Berea, where he was preaching, and they actively agitated the Gentiles against Paul as well. The Jews were constantly working. Then again in Corinth, where Paul is likely writing this letter from. In Acts 18.12, it states, The Jews rose up with one accord against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat of the governor of the entire province. So, so the Jews were just hounding Paul. And to say that this, would, this pattern would have been exhausting for Paul is probably an incredible understatement. I mean, just imagine this. Your own people, your own brethren, fellow Jews, hunting you down, following you wherever you go, resisting the gospel. Nearly every city where Paul sought to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, there his own countrymen, fellow Jews, would appear and work against him. So I think we can rightly sense the emotion in Paul's words. They killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets. They drove us out from Thessalonica. They are not pleasing to God, and they are opposed to all men, preventing us from preaching the gospel to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. But Paul was not merely just like sort of venting his annoyance with the Jews here that, that so dogged him from city to city. He wanted the Thessalonian church to understand what God thought about this. What does God think about the opposition from the Jews? Again, God's own chosen people. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul tells us, continuing in verse 16, he says, with the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the utmost. This is the ongoing results of Jewish opposition. And these two final sort of lines in verse 16, what we have is really a twofold result or outcome of Jewish resistance to the gospel. Simply, we could state them as this. Their sin overflows and God's wrath is unleashed. The result of the Jewish opposition to the gospel is that they always fill up the measure of their sins. They always are filling this up, always filling up the measure of their sins. And this language of filling up sort of conveys a, a normal or a regular bi biblical metaphor of a, of a cup being filled. The image implies that there's a little bit left in the cup that is yet to be filled, partially empty, but it is rapidly filling up to the brim. And with each fresh act of hostility, 
the sum of their sins is reaching to that tipping point. This is the pattern of the Jews just revolting against God and persecuting God's people that just occurred in just an uninterrupted succession of evil acts down throughout the history of really all mankind. And God's working with Israel and into the church. And there is a consequence for it all. They are filling up their sins, but God's wrath is unleashed. And sort of in contrast to this accumulating, this net accumulating of sins, Paul writes, wrath has come upon them to the utmost. And I would say that this phrase, this final line, is definitely the most difficult part of this passage to interpret. The text says that the wrath has come upon them. In other words, it's, it's overtaken them. It's, it's arrived upon them. And it's in here in the past tense. Most naturally, we might be looking for something that occurred then in the past, prior to AD 50 when Paul was writing this letter, uh, to determine what exactly does Paul have in mind. He says the wrath has come upon them. But there's no really one epic event of judgment against Israel prior to AD 50 that really fits this description. So rather than looking for an act of God's judgment, I think we're better off in understanding that God's wrath, sort of his anger or indignation, has maybe just settled in upon Israel, upon his chosen people. I mean, it's this, for this reason, as we read in Luke 19, that Jesus wept over the city of Jerusalem. You recall, they missed their time of visitation. They rejected their Messiah. And although there will always be, and there's always has been, a believing remnant in mass, God has sort of set Israel aside in unbelief. Again, according to Romans 11.25, God has brought about a, a partial hardening upon his people. So God's wrath occasionally finds an expression in human history like it did in AD 70. But I think the idea here is just that God's wrath has settled in upon them. His anger has, has now bearing down upon them. And we, I think it's important to point out that final phrase. It says, to the utmost. This might be the most difficult part. To the utmost. Wrath has come upon them to the utmost. If you have an English standard version or an NIV, your Bible might read, the wrath has come upon them at last. And the phrase in the Greek is literally to the end. It's, you can hear it in the word ace telos. Telos means end. So ace telos. And there's really a lot of debate about what those two words mean. And some take it in sort of an intensive manner. It's in, a, it's in a describing... Uh, the wrath coming completely or utterly or in its fullest extent. This is how the translation of the Bible that I'm using today, the New American Standard, renders it. They say, wrath has come upon them to the utmost, to the fullest degree. That's that intensive meaning possibility. Others understand it to have more of a, a temporal meaning, a temporal meaning, we might say. This is where we get the, the translation that reads, at last. Wrath has come upon them at last, or sort of finally. And this suggests that the wrath of God is now sort of culminated and is now overflowing upon Israel. And usually interpreters who translate this as at last understand this phrase to be referring to Jerusalem, the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. But I still think this is a little bit problematic because Paul is writing 20 years before that occurred. And again, he's using the past tense. And technically, he's using the aorist tense in the indicative mood, which almost always in our Bible refers to events that have occurred in, a pa in the past. 
So I don't think it's right to assume that he's referring to Jerusalem, uh, the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. At least not solely does he have that in mind. However, based upon just the structure of this verse, without getting too technical here, I do think the temporal meaning is to be preferred. I just don't think at last is the best translation. You see, part of the difficulty of just understanding this little phrase here is that Paul, nowhere else in all of his writings, uses those two words, ace, telos. But he uses from some very similar phrases. For example, in 2 Corinthians 3.13, Paul writes, We are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face, so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. That's a very similar phrase. It's ace ta telos. In 2 Corinthians 1.13, Paul writes, I hope you will understand until the end. Heos telus. Very similar phrase. 1 Corinthians 1.8, Paul assures the believers that the Lord Jesus would confirm you to the end. End. Heos telus. Again, a very similar phrase. So if we compare 1 Thessalonians 2.16 with those three examples, I think we're better off to render this phrase as the wrath has come upon them to the end or until the end. This is how Jesus uses that exact same phrase, ace telos, in a a well-known verse. It were called John 13, verse 1. It says there, Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having having loved his own, referring to the disciples, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. That's how our Bibles translates it, to the end. That's the same phrase. So if we can kind of pull this all together and come back here a little bit. The text is saying the wrath has come upon the Jewish people until the end. Meaning wrath will continue to come against the, the people of Israel until Jesus returns. Until Christ comes again. Until the end. Until then, there's just more wrath in store for the people of Israel. 80, 70, I think of the Holocaust, more wrath for the chosen people of God, Israel. And most notably, the greatest day of judgment for Israel that is yet to come. What the Bible refers to as the time of Jacob's trouble or the time of Jacob's distress in Jeremiah 32. This is what is commonly referred to as the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord, or maybe more common in our sort of vernacular today, the tribulation period. The tribulation period is particularly designed to break the rebellion of Israel, to finally bring them to repentance. Jeremiah says about that day of the Lord, he says, the day is great and there's none like it. No other expression of wrath will be like that final expression of wrath that comes against Israel. Wrath has come upon them to the end. Now, if we just, okay, this is what the text has said, and if we just pull back for a moment and consider this passage and and these two verses in particular, I might imagine that the Thessalonians might have wondered, okay, Paul, why do you want us to know this? Uh, What is relevant for here, or what is relevant for us here in this passage? And you might be asking the same some of yourself, like, why do we need to know this? Why is this important? As far as I know, I don't think any of us are Jewish. I could be wrong. We're a Gentile church in the year 2021. Why would God have chosen to have these two verses inscripturated in his holy word? I wrestled with that, and I, and I thought of a couple, a couple of reasons. I have three reasons. 
maybe three things that we can draw from this passage. Uh, One is that we can be blind to the truth. Just note how blind Israel was. They missed it. They missed it. Of all people, they should have got it, and they missed it. They had the oracles of God, and they missed it. They rejected their Messiah. The second, uh, I think Paul wanted this Thessalonian church to know, and ultimately us to know, that we should expect opposition. Here it was Jewish opposition, and I don't suspect we'll face Jewish opposition here in Billings, Montana, but Paul says over in 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So by extension, I think we should also be, as a church, going, we will be persecuted. It's been promised for us in 2 Timothy. All who desire to live godly will be persecuted. So when it happens, we should recognize it as normal. This is the way it's always been. God's people have always been persecuted. And finally, I just think God wants us to understand what has happened to Israel. He wants us to understand his plan of redemption and how Israel fits into it. He wants our our thinking about Israel and really God's dealing with mankind in general to be accurate. So maybe while there's there's no easy principle for us to apply here, our, our entire worldview and our entire way that we understand God's working in human history is shaped by this sort of passage. And, it really doesn't, and this passage really doesn't spell out for us the ultimate, uh, of the ultimate end of God's plan for Israel. And just to understand that briefly, we'd be best to turn to where Paul explicitly spends three chapters teaching on that very topic. So if you would, please turn with me to Romans 10, and we'll end here. Romans 9, 10, and 11 all focus in on God's dealing with Israel. We'll we'll jump in at at verse 1 of chapter 10. I just want you to see these three verses. Romans chapter 10, verse 1. Paul writes, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God is for them, for their salvation, referring to Israel. He says in verse 2, For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. The Jews here had a zeal. They had a very real zeal for God, but sadly it was not informed by biblical truth. And that's why they're in constant opposition to the gospel. They missed it. God provided righteousness for them in the person of Jesus Christ, and they just went on trying to build their own righteousness by obeying the law, which it was never intended to do. But Paul sort of brings these chapters to culmination into a passage or some verses that we've already seen this morning. Look over at Romans chapter 11, verse 25. Verse 25, it says, For I do not want, I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery. Mystery, something that hasn't been fully explained in the past, but I'm revealing it to you now, Paul says, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. He says that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in so that all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion and he will remove ungodliness from from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Paul writes, from the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, 
They are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. So here we find God's final plan for his, for his people. A partial hardening has occurred only to be removed after the fullness of the Gentiles have come in. That's people like us, believing the gospel, entering into the kingdom. After the fullness, the full number of the Gentiles come in, then God will turn and grant repentance to Israel. And he will restore them and he will sort of summarily take away their sins as they finally enter the new covenant. God has chosen them and God's choice and calling are irrevocable. You need to see that. His calling of Israel is irrevocable. And even though they are hardened right now in their sin, there will come a day when God turns to them in his grace and allows them to repent, pours out repentance upon them. This is what the prophet Zechariah has prophesied over in Zechariah 12, 10, he says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. Amazing words. They will look upon me whom they've pierced and they will mourn for him as they mourn over an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the weeping over a firstborn. So this is all brought about by that great day of wrath that will come upon Israel. And one day Israel will finally break and they'll look upon Jesus, the one whom they pierced, and they will mourn for him like the mourning of the loss of an only son. You see, this is God's wonderful plan of redemption. When the kingdom is finally established and Christ comes to reign upon the earth. And according to passages like Revelation 5, all of God's people, they're reigning with him. It's the full fulfillment of all of God's promises. And as we just sort of see these truths and marvel at the Lord's working among Israel and marvel at the Lord's mercy and grace, even in our own lives, being some of those Gentiles who just sort of eat the crumbs off the table, and we marvel at this, well, what do we say? As we look at God's wonderful plan, what do we say? I think Paul models it for us. Look at Romans 11.33. Paul just ends this description of what God is working about in Israel and really all of his work in salvation, chapters 1 through 11. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Paul says, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or become his counselor? In other words, don't oversimplify it. This is marvelous. Who has first given to him that it may be, may be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Paul worships. He records his worships here. And these verses inform our worship. So understanding God's plan of redemption informs our worship. It teaches us more about God. We understand more of his character by under, understanding more of his revealed will. So I think that's part of why Paul added verses 15 and 16. He wants us to understand what God is doing ultimately because he knows it glorifies God's and it, and it sort of magnifies our worship as we understand rightly all that God has done and all that he is doing. So let's do that in prayer together. Let's worship him. Heavenly Father, God, you are worthy of all of our lives. God, we do just marvel at the depths of both the wisdom and knowledge of God. We confess how unsearchable are your judgments and your ways to us are just unfathomable. 
and you are worthy of all of our praise. God, so we, we just pray from our hearts as, as sinful creatures, we pray that we could just give you worship. Here and now, we confess that you are God. You reign over our lives, but we also want our lives to be given to you as sort of a, a living sacrifice. Our entire lives surrendered to your will, pleasing to you. And finally, we ask, Lord, if, if there be any here who do not know Christ, maybe even a person who's religious, but religious like the Jews, a, re- a religious zeal not in accord with knowledge, I pray that you would reveal yourself to them and grant them repentance. May they come to the Lord Jesus Christ as the only hope of their salvation. Please save them. And we pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you know, we've been singing Christmas songs, so I think we've got one left. And a special note, joy to the world, thinking about Christ's second return, worshiping him when he comes again. So to that end, let's, let's worship together.